0: This is John Drabinski, and you're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and for positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Stephanie Dunning, professor of English at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. The author of numerous essays on African-American literature and culture, Stephanie has authored two books, Queer in Black and White, Interraciality, Same-Sex Desire, and Contemporary African-American Culture, published by Indiana University Press in 2009, and Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, which was published by University of Mississippi Press in 2021 and the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we discuss the origins of the book, the importance of nature and plant life in thinking about African-American literature and cultural production, and the complexities of Afro-pessimism for theorizing the end of the world, the terms of beginning again, and the possibilities for imagining a different future. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me, John.
0: I'm really happy you made the time to uh, talk about your book today. I absolutely love this book. I think it's incredibly important, uh, super innovative, has so much stuff for our shared field of uh, study of Black literature and culture. Um, and I just wanted to say that up front, I really love this book. I think it's really important. And so having a chance to talk with you about it today, is, um, I really value not only your time, but uh, the your willingness to share some thoughts on the book.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that.
0: So let me start, uh, to at, uh, start off our conversation asking you really to narrate your way for us into the project. You know, uh, books are enormous existential undertakings They require us to put all kinds of things aside, prioritize writing and research and thinking and editing. And so, you know, I, I think there's a, a, certainly a myth I had as, a, as an undergrad that you just sort of write your ideas, right? But it's an entire existential investment. And so a thing that I know about myself and about all of us as writers is that there's something about a project we undertake that sustains us, right, and motivates us to make that priority and make those kinds of changes uh, in our lives to write these books. And so in that way, I, I wanted to ask you to sort of draw us through that process for you. You know, what drew you in terms of philosophical concerns, ethical, political, personal concerns? Like, what drew you to this project such that you would do something like write a book? And uh, why write this book now?
1: Wow. Okay. So that's that there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Um, and I, I want to say that the the primary sort of tug for me to write the book was personal. So the way it kind of happened is, you know, I went through um, a, a pretty massive like upheaval in my personal life. Um, I got divorced from my first husband and within about a year or two of that, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I almost feel like I was kind of reborn as as a as a person in a certain kind of way at that Mm -hmm. moment. Like everything that I sort of thought and my ways of being in the world all really radically shifted because I was sort of confronted with my mortality. Um, Mm -hmm. And I write about this, you know, in the book. Um, But the way that I dealt with it and the way that I coped with it, because, you know, I had a five year old child at the time. and I had to kind of, you know, as as we do in 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 our capitalist society, where even if you have a brain tumor, you still kind of have to show up to work and you still have to, yeah. you know, pack <laughs> yeah. the pack the lunches and drop people off at, you know, ballet. Um, I I dealt with it a lot by when I was alone, I would go into nature and. Um, It was kind of almost like an instinctual thing that I did. I just found that, you know, after drop off on days when I wasn't teaching, I would just really be yearning to be in the woods or be by water. And so I would just be going on these like mega hikes. Um, And um, and then I started camping and then I started backpacking and it just became a much more intense relationship with nature as a way to sort of counterbalance the stress of being treated for this brain tumor and and just dealing with all the many changes in my mm-hmm. life. Um, once I sort of got to a state of, you know, what we'll call remission, um, I began to, I began, you know, I as my mind does, I began to sort of think about how this experience in nature, these many experiences I was having in nature, um how they might uh, show up in the literature that I'm interested in and in the, mm-hmm. in the aspects of black culture that I'm interested in. And I started just noticing that there was a lot there, <laughs> you know, I started yeah. just kind of, it was, I I started kind of realizing that, Oh, okay. So there seems to be something that's sort of happening, um, you know, in black culture and there's a thing that has been happening in black letters for a long time that we may not have paid attention to in a certain kind of way. Uh, because mm-hmm. you can you can go back to Hurston. I mean, you can go you can go back very far in the black tradition and find a lot of what we might call uh, ecological considerations or, mm-hmm. um, can, you know, so so I so I thought, you know. Here's this thing that's a really big part of my life. I've moved to the country um you know, I live on a, a couple of acres and I spend all this time in nature and I thought, I wonder if I could write a book about my about the ways in which nature saved my life that's mm-hmm. really that's really how I came to write Black to Nature. I wanted to write a book about how. Nature saved my life when I had really gone through the hardest thing, one of the hardest things that I've ever been through. And what was funny about that is when I began to write the project, it was really hard at first because at the time that I started thinking about it, which was in about 2013 or 2014. Um, you know, there just wasn't like now there's a ton of stuff. There's a ton of organizations. There's lots of books. There's a, a lot of things going on around, you know, black ecologies. And, mm-hmm. um, but at the time when I first started thinking about it, uh, nature and blackness seemed like strange bedfellows to people. And, and yeah. many, and many folks were kind of like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't see if this doesn't seem to have legs to me. And so the hardest part, of of really getting into it was just trusting myself enough to say this is the project I want to do and I'm just going to do it even if it ends up being you know something that has no kind of purchase in the field. Mm-hmm. So that's really how I that's really kind of how I how I came to it and I thought and because I because my sort of personal impetus in writing the book was about how nature saved my life, you know, one of my ethical considerations was to to extend this proposition to other people that uh that na- that that engagement with nature either you know even intellectually um might be a way to address some of the more intractable problems that we face as mm. black as mm. black people
0: yeah that's so interesting i you know it is true you know, at, at, there's even a series on Duke, you know, the Black Outdoors. Yes. Um, But you're right that this is an entirely new, you know, way to it's interesting just to hear you recall that for me to recall that because I, I know it, but I hadn't thought of it even reading your book about, you know, just how recent this idea of actually thinking about Blackness and nature together. I mean, that is, but it's also, I think it is something, I mean, this is, I'm not trying to sideline into my own sort of curiosities and projects, but I think that's actually in some ways at the heart of Du Bois's anxiety about Washington, of you know, this this New England intellectual being completely disoriented by black people on farms, by yeah. black people in nature, and and Washington's attempt to recover the dignity of labor, I think it's still labor, but it is, I think it has these elements of, you know, this is an old strange bedfellow as, as you put it. And But it's also saturates so much literature, you know, and so much cultural production.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean, I think that, you know, of course, now I see um, considerations about nature or appreciation of natural things everywhere in the tradition now, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, there's so many more things I could have included in the book that I didn't. Um, and so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a stereotypical assumption that black people don't care about nature. And that is just not upheld in the tradition at all. Yeah, yeah, It's just that people haven't sort of framed it and articulated articulated it as, you know, and I'll put this I'll use this term in, co- in quotes as an echo critical project. It hasn't been treated as an you know like black um treatments of nature haven't been read through the lens of echo criticism, so people have assumed that that black people haven't talked about the environment, and that's just not true and so part of what i'm 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 sort of staging that intervention in black to nature as well,
0: yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I think that's part of what's what when I say I think the book is really innovative and important. it's recovering that exactly what you're talking about in terms of, and that's what, you know, theoretical innovations do. They allow us to see something different. I always say this about, about theory is that theory is not something you overlay onto a text, but it's like a stain that you put on wood that brings out its grains that you hadn't noticed before. And I, I, I think the book really does that so well. Um, Thank you. And, and it's incredibly important that the tradition be understood in its complexity and richness, and the, that's again, that's part of what I really loved about the book. Is it made me think about all these elements of the tradition that haven't been looked at. You know, you of course, it's one book, and it's not multi. It's not eight hundred pages. There's a ton of more readings to do, but that innovation of getting us to see and to read and to 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 uncover those like grains of the tradition. I I really love that. And it helps, you know, I wanted to ask you about the title and subtitle and, you know, you, you know, the black to nature is exactly what you were talking about, right? That's, that's what the way the, the, the title really captures both the way you talked about the origins of the project and the way that's a part of the, the book itself. I do think that your reflections on mortality, especially at the end of the book are really, really profound and really important, um, uh to, to uh, read and to think about and to see as part of your interpretive process. Um, and I wanted to then to ask you about the subtitle, because I think you've spoken to the title Black to Nature, and you may want to say a few more words about that. But the thing that stood out in the subtitle for me was this phrase pastoral return right? I really love that phrase. And so I just wanted to ask you to talk about it a little bit. Obviously, if one wants to know about what do you mean by pastoral return, you read the book. But I want to ask you to talk about it. Why pastoral and why return? Why put these uh, terms together?
1: Well, so I, you know, black to nature, it turns out, is the kind of phrase that many folk think of. Um, So, you know, I originally when I was, when I was thinking about the book, like in 2013, 2014, I thought the title was going to be the black pastoral colon, something, something, something. Um, but then I decided to make it black to nature. And then a good friend of mine um, who um, is, is a brilliant, has just a brilliant mind said, um, cause I was talking to her about my work. She said, Um, She's a lawyer. So she said, what you need to do is you need to go on Instagram and you need to get Black to Nature's the Instagram handle. You need to make (laughs) you need to make a Facebook thing. This is Black to Nature um, before it gets taken. And then you have to spend a bunch of money to buy it from someone or something like that. So Uh, I so so I went to do that and discovered there was an organization called Black to Nature. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs> and uh, and that there was a Facebook page called Black to Nature. And I was like, oh, geez. But there were no books called Black to Nature. Um, so Black to Nature, it turns out, is kind of the sort of phrase that many, many, you know, will occur to many people, like Black to hmm. the future. Hmm. You know, it's one of those things. Any phrase that has the word back in it can be turned to Black and, and yeah. it would be really great. So, But it was catchy. Black to Nature is pretty, pretty catchy. Um, as for the subtitle, um, I had, I had thought about changing it. So I thought about making it black to nature, um, abolition, something and interbeing, but the press was like, no, we, we like, we like pastoral return in African-American culture. Um, so the, as far as the phrase pastoral return is, is, is concerned, you know, what I really mean by that is, so, you know, as, as you, as you kind of alluded to, this could have been like a four volume book. I mean, I could have done, I could do a whole historical treatment, you know, going back to, you know, um, Harriet Tubman. I mean, you know, I could, I could go back to slave narratives and we could do a whole historiography of, of black um, nature writing um, or black writing that is concerned in in part with nature. Um, so I decided to kind of uh narrow my focus to um to a really contemporary moment. And and what I noticed when I looked at, at this this literature is that you know relative to a, a kind of ideological trajectory that happens in in African American writing, there it there is a way in which there seems to be um more willingness to openly Embrace the pastoral uh, background of blackness. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, so that's what's happening in Lemonade. And of course, you know, even with someone like Lil Nas X, who shoots to fame uh, with a with a song that's sampling Billy Ray Cyrus, and you know, about uh, Old Town Road. And it's like if you if you look at the the music video for that, it's a lot about ho- black horsemanship. And so there's mm-hmm. this way in which um, something begins to sort of happen, I think, as I argue in the book, um, where you even have a reverse migration of people, of black people sort of returning to the South. Um, and so that's kind of where this concept of mm-hmm. pastoral return comes from.
0: Yeah, no, it's a... Uh, uh- it's it's interesting because for me, you know, when when you narrated your way into the project, it, it has a um, multiple registers, but a very visceral relationship to, to to nature, right? Yeah. As this sort of reframing the entirety of your relationship to life, and then to to literary and cultural study, and then pastoral return is this sort of, um, you know, draws a sort of contemplative, thoughtful, you know like you say, like a sort of foreground or background, uh, uh sort of place of nature. And I think I, I like that cause it's like the book, um, I think draws both of those, right. It has that sense of, of the visceral and the contemplative at the same time. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, uh, you know, not to, you know, before we even open up the book, let me ask you about the tie or the, uh, cover. I love the cover. I, I love covers generally. I don't I, I don't know if you got to choose the cover. I still aspire to be an author who gets to choose his cover every time. Every time they give me a range of options, and I, I pick the one I like most. Um and three out of the four times I got the one that I like the most. Um but your cover, and for people who listen to the podcast, they'll be able to to click on the, the, you know, to see the cover. So it's something they can look at as they listen, is this 2015 painting titled Forbidden Fruit Picker by Wangichi Mutu. And I'm just interested to hear uh, about that choice. You know, what, not only sort of, you know, why, what you like, but also how you see it as relating to the project. You know, I it does strike me as like every great cover. It's a cover that's in some ways half the story, if not more, of the book itself.
1: Yeah. Well, I absolutely love the cover of the book. Um, And I did choose the cover of the book. Um, And the reason that that I chose it is because, as you know, in the introductory chapter, I spend a lot of time sort of talking about the ways in which um, Western discourse has deployed the notion of the Garden of Eden um, mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. way to sort of, you know, uh, you know, as a sign of its own vexed relationship to to nature,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: how uh, blackness has been sort of, you know, braided into those considerations. And so, that image, the forbidden fruit picker, I think evokes on some level the idea of Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, uh, so it relates, I think in that, in that sense. Um, and then at the end of the book, um, in the, in the final chapter, um, where I'm sort of talking about these notions of, of sovereignty, trespassing, the wild space, the wild garden, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of put pressure on these discourses about, land that suggests land is a thing that can be owned and if land cannot be owned food cannot be owned either i mean and this is a really kind of uh forbidden idea if you think about it so this notion of the forbidden fruit picker um to me is like it indexes this sort of subversion around all of these materialist and capitalist notions about well who gets to pick the fruit who gets to eat the fruit? And you know, so the forbidden fruit picker to me is that sort of insurrectionary black figure that is always sort of trespassing upon the assumptions of borders and upon the assumptions of ownership and and thus you know eve is is you know as as we you know you can see in a lot of feminist discourses, Eve is recuperated as this liberatory figure, right? Who violates uh-huh. the law of patriarchy by eating the fruit. And so to me, the most natural thing in the world is for a human being to be walking around and pick fruit and eat it. But we live mm-hmm. in a world where that's forbidden. So, uh-huh. so, the, so the cover and that image, and especially the ways in which the image is made as this sort of composition of parts, we get you know, so, it, so it, it undermines also essentialist notions about identity and smoothness and, and, and oneness mm-hmm. in a way that I think is really um, fascinating. And of course, I mean, it's also beautiful. Like
0: it's, It really is.
1: It's a beautiful image to look at. Yeah. And it has the serpent in it. And so I think it really picks up so many of the resonances of things I'm doing in the text.
0: Yeah, it is just it's you know there are a handful of covers that fill me with envy, and that is one of them. It's just it is a stunning piece. I mean, Mutu's work is is just amazing, and that's nothing unique to say. But that's a, a such a fantastic piece. I loved hearing you talk about it. It it, it definitely makes me now see it uh, shift the way I see it a little bit. You know, I, I really like that, and just the observation of you know that that picking fruit off a tree is forbidden, right? Because food is somebody's property. Yeah. Um, that's a, yeah. And as you say, that, that really cuts to the heart of so much of the book, um, you know, in terms of its deep ethics. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you about uh, the, your theoretical orientation in the book and really to give a, if, if you would give a characterization of it. I mean, one of the things I really like about the project is that it, draws on so many different kinds of sources. And I want to ask you about those sources uh, in a moment, but um, it's also a very theoretical book and I'm a, a pure theory person. You know, I, I work with, you know, cultural production, but really in the interest of theory as a theorist. And so for me, what stood out about the book was it's theoretical disposition. It's a very theoretical book while also being rooted in all sorts of, you know, first person, uh, elements a uh, wide range of 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 cultural texts um, but I wanted to ask ask you if you could give a bit of a characterization of how you understand yourself as a as a theorist in the book right or maybe generally because for me, when I was reading it i was I kept thinking that I was like, How could I characterize this and I was like well that 's why you talk to the author <laughs> right because I think that's one of the one of the really interesting parts of the book is it, it has theoretical elements to it. that I just find really uh, fantastic. You know, you mentioned eco-critical, but you also put it in quote marks, and that that sort of struck me when you said that. I was like, "Yes." As I was reading, I was like, "Eco-critical," but in quote marks because I think it's something different. So let I thought like, let me hear what Stephanie has to say about the theoretical part uh, orientation of the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I would say that my theoretical orientation is very much a Black Studies orientation. Um, and the reason I put echo criticism in scare quotes, and I talk about this in the book is because, you know, traditionally echo criticism has, has been, um, it, you know, it, it's excluded black texts and sometimes has reified really problematic, um, racist kinds of notions about the environment, um, and sort of deployed, it's you know insights against indigenous people, against black people. So, so I really hesitate to align myself with eco criticism. Mm. Um, you know, I think of myself, and this this will this you know this will get into um, you know this may sound weird to people, but um, I can elaborate on it. I really think of myself as an Afro pessimist, and while I know that's a sort of controversial uh, position to occupy um this this you know this project comes out of um a sort of um a deep sense of um of the the sort of unviability of the current mm-hmm. structure in which we live and and so the so the the sort of you know weird thing about like how i think is is that I just read really broadly across a lot of different theoretical, um, um, you know, schools of thought. So, you you know, you could also say, um, and you know, this is, I'm not like grabbing hold of this in a super strong way, but some of my insights were enabled and kind of facilitated by my reading of anarcho-primitivism, for example. Um, and mm-hmm. those sorts of critiques of civilization, which, you know, work really well, you know, when uh, when you when you kind of dig into an Afro pessimist framework about Western society. So mm-hmm. so that's that's the sort of, you know, interesting conjunction of my of my thinking. Um, mm mm-hmm in the in the text in my sort of theoretical orientations in the text and also i think my my you know my theoretical orientation is sort of an interdisciplinary sort of black feminist one mm-hmm. um and so um and so so all of those things are kind of coming together in this in this i think interesting way
0: yeah that's a that's a uh, sort of a fantastic but especially anarcho-primitivism i i like you know this thinking about this this collage of of theoretical influences or dispositions however i'm never quite sure how to put it because it's I, I never think of it a think of theory as positions i know some people do but you know it's dispositions and sensibilities and um so that's uh i, I love that that as a as a collage and because it's a collage, you know, those, each of those have, as you say, they have their own traditions, right? They have Mm -hmm. their own, their own prerogatives that stay very fixed in some ways. That's, that's what a theoretical position is, but your ability in the book, I think to, to reassemble those as a writer is really fantastic. And it's of course related to the material that you work from, right? And that's, that's, again, that's part of what I really love about the book is that it's very theoretical, but it's not a theory that just sort of collects its objects, but it's a theory that has a really interesting relationship to the texts that you study. And, and and so when thinking about those texts, I mean, there's an, another sort of follow-up in some ways, it's the other side of the theory question, which is, a question about the your choice of texts. You know, you've talked about this could have been an eight-volume work, and uh, you know, or more, and you know, could have written hundreds and hundreds of pages. Which means you have to choose, right? You have to say, I want to talk about these particular texts. And what's uh, what strikes me as a reader who's also imagining—I often do this when I read—imagine like what what is it like writing this book? Is you know, you you obviously make selections. You, this is not a broad strokes book. It, it is anchored in in specific texts at the same time that it tells a big story. But also, those texts are eclectic, right? You know, you you have canonical African Americans uh, uh, literary sources and theoretical resources, but also popular cultural uh, texts. And so, I wanted to ask two questions. Really, one is, you know what guided you in making those choices? Because the the field that you could have chosen from was massive and you, you made choices, but also because it's eclectic, because it isn't like, I'm just going to talk about, you know, Hurston and, you know, you know, Colin and Hughes, you know, you, you know, it. you draw so many different things together, both in terms of the kinds of texts they are, but also the periods they're from. What kind of challenges has that put to you as a writer to write across those different kinds of texts and different kinds of periods? So what guided you in those choices and what challenges were there working with such an eclectic collection?
1: Well, this is a really organic book. And by that, I mean that, you know, and I mean, this is this is sort of the privilege of of having tenure, right? I, I was like, I will write about the text I am most interested in. Now there are certainly like places that one could go. I mean, I could have spent a lot more time talking about Cain, by Gene Toomer, for example, as as some people you know do. Um, but I wasn't as interested in Cain as I was in some other texts. So the way that I sort of chose the texts were the ones that I couldn't stop thinking about. They were the ones that made me feel the most kind of inspired. They were the ones that made me feel that they had the most poignancy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when I saw Lemonade, like, I think I texted, you know, my best friend at like probably 5 (laughs) a.m. in the morning the next day. And I was Uh like, I don't know what you're doing, but you have to wake up and you have to watch (laughs) Lemonade (laughs) because it is amazing. Like I like I've watched that so many times and I every single time I watch it, I feel so something. You know, I'm so in my feelings, as as the younger people say. Um, and that's... I just, I, out, I just yeah. sorry,
0: to, I have to interrupt you and just say, like, I will never forget the two weeks after that came out teaching. Because so I was teaching in, in a Black Studies department. My class, my first class, I walked in, I hadn't seen it. And a student was standing at the door and said, we have to talk about lemonade. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, that, that was unlike, I think, any cultural production event i've ever witnessed but anyway sorry to interrupt you no
1: that's okay that's okay so i so i was just really guided by the things the text that i was captivated by and that i was interested in um so i didn't make in other words i didn't make any any choices to include anything on the basis of like say canon you know there wasn't there wasn't a notion about canon building that i brought to this i only brought to it Uh what was in my heart and what I cared about and what I loved. Um, And that was just a decision I made for my kind of my own sanity, right? Because as academics, we can sort of, you know, I mean, it had like, you know, as I was working through this project, I mean, many people would come to me and say, hey, why don't you write about like, there was a, there was a movie on Netflix called Mudbound. You know, someone said, oh, you know, you should look at this movie Mudbound. And I, and I looked at it and um, and certainly, obviously, you know it, it has its its merits and it's interesting, so I don't mean to dismiss it in any way, but it didn't light a fire in me the way mm. these other texts did. so that was really what informed my choices um
0: uh-huh.
1: and um and then the other the in terms of like sort of negotiating you know the different genres, again, I think that there's there's a way in which. Um, we're at least I, this is how I, this is how my textual life goes. My textual life is a very multifaceted one. So when I'm reading a book and I'm, and I'm feeling a lot in the book, I'm seeing resonances of what I'm feeling in that book elsewhere. And my impulse is to connect them. So, um, and so. You know, so that is really how, you know, I sort of move around through genre. Like, I really like multi generic work. I like work that where I can feel like I can, I can move into, I can think into this idea at multiple sites. Uh-huh. I can think into this idea in film. I can think into this idea in music. I can think into this idea here and there. Like, so everything seems to be sort of dynamically speaking to everything else and to be able to kind of tease out those threads like that's what i really like about what i do like that's mm-hmm. that that's like to be able to find that that revelation that that line between you know Beyonce's music and visual album and Julie Dash's daughters of the dust like to be able to find that feels like you know the most ultimate treasure hunt to me
0: And I think, you know, and you said it, it's also the, it's the liberation that comes with, I I think, a combination of tenure and a black studies approach. Yes. Right. That that the question of canon bears very differently, I think, in a black studies approach because of its, of its expansive sense of a text. And also, as you said, tenure. I mean, you know, I wish it didn't take tenure for so many people to, and a lot of people even don't after tenure, but to feel that moment of, of writerly liberation, but. Um, hearing you talk about it, I'm reminded of, of that privileged moment as intellectuals, not just in terms of job security, which is huge, but um, in terms of our capacity to think and write. Yeah you know, and, but also the Black studies approach, which I take for granted as my field, but um, you know hearing you talk about this, uh, it just re- it really reminds me of, of what I love about the field and also like what kinds of stuff is possible you know, when one fully runs towards it?
1: Well, I think in my, you know, in my first book, um, you know, I felt not, not that there aren't great moments in that first book, but like, you know, I, I, my judgment of the two projects is that it it wasn't as successful, you know, critically, it wasn't as successful a project as black to nature. And part of the reason for that was because it was the tenure book. It was like, it was like the book where I felt, that I had to really please a critic somewhere out there Mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to, like, you know, keep my job. And so it, it wasn't as intrinsically kind of motivated. Whereas with Black to Nature, I really felt like, okay, I have to write a thing that I would want to read. I have to write a thing that's fully sort of related to the architecture of my own heart and where I am mm-hmm. right now. And if, if people don't like it, if they can it, if they say, this is, this is like, you know, whatever, then that's okay. Because like, actually I'm, I'm really writing for myself and it, mm-hmm. you know, as it always is, right. It's like, you're more successful when you write for yourself and when you write from that place, as opposed to like trying to um, speak to an invisible critic. Um, and so Yeah. So I so it took a lot of like, you know, it takes a lot of like, I think, courage, actually, um, to step into that moment and just say, Mm -hmm. well, I don't know what anybody else is going to think about this. But this is kind of this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. This is what matters to me now. And it matters to me to say it like this. And Mm -hmm. that's really where 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 I was with with this book.
0: Can you imagine a profession in which that was the starting point?
1: I wish I I tell I I, I tell my graduate students this all the time. I say I know it seems I know that what I know this sounds like BS, but I swear to you, if you just do it how you really want to do it, do it how it means so that it means the most to you, it will mm -hmm. be way more successful than trying to write like this person's voice or trying to you know, achieve some external thing you admire. Um mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just do your own thing. Like to the best of your ability, do your own thing. So
0: Yeah. The professionalization process is a kind of elimination of of so much of our soulfulness as readers and writers. But um so this is a lesson, you know, that's a reminder that, you know, this is what makes great books. This is what makes books that we're excited about. So anyway, the invisible critic thing—I feel haunted by it all the time, and and uh, it's endemic to just being a, uh, you know, in in academia. But uh, I, I like that we are able to at least name it here. As, yeah. As a as a block, you know, and, and a block not just to like being yourself or or a trope like that, but as you said, like having a successful book. Right, where does its success lie? I, I really love that. Yeah. So so you mentioned Lemonade uh, a couple of times. I want to ask you in the opening chapter, which is my favorite chapter of the book, I have to say, um, you put uh, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust and uh, Beyonce's uh, video album Lemonade together. Uh, I love Daughters of the Dust. I teach it all the time. And I always – is one of those films when I come into that week of classes, I'm like, if you have anything negative to say about this film, keep it to yourself – this is one of the true masterpieces of world expressive anything. I, I absolutely love that film. And I, I love your treatment of it. I, 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 You know, I hope more and more people write about it and unlock dimensions of it. And it was really um, fantastic to see it set alongside Lemonade, which for all of, I think of its appreciation and its cultural moment you know, there was that question for me, will it be taken up seriously by scholars who want to to do things with it? And putting it next to Daughters of the Dust. I have to say, when I first saw it, I was surprised. And then I got done and I was surprised at my own surprise. Because I, I think that's that's part of what you do so well in the chapter, but also part of some 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 sort of energy that 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 bonds those two things together. Um, in important ways. So I want to ask you, you know, what drew you to this, com- this, this combination, this, this pairing? Um, and what do you think it does?
1: Well, um, you know, well, you know, I, I, I want to say that, um, you know, and this, this kind of goes back a little, a little bit. Um, so this is sort of bringing in a, a previous question you asked as a through way to this. You know, the other the other thing about, you know, the texts that I that I chose, most of them, you know, except except for the ones I criticized But I love these texts like I love Daughters of the Dust, too. And it's a text I teach very frequently um, in my African-American literature classes and in my American literature classes and my film classes. Um, and um, what I love about Daughters of the Dust is that. It, it, it comes at a moment um, where, um, you know, it's, it's it's almost kind of like one of the first contemporary texts to begin to question the outcomes of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and visually, you know, when you're watching Lemonade, if you've seen Daughters of the Dust, then it's it's going to evoke, that text for you. And I and I definitely think that a lot of the implications of both texts is kind of a question about the progress narrative as I point out. And mm-hmm. in and in the context of of black women, I think both texts um you know subvert this notion, um this 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 thing that exists in American society that always um constructs black women as um um you know extra as negative as um unwanted so i think both texts sort of um you know are subverting those logics and rebutting those logics in some mm-hmm. important kinds of ways and i think that this is one of the things that you know if you go backpacking for for 2 weeks then you know, a lot of the sort of um, messages about, you know, the appropriateness of your looks, of your body, of your way of being, you know, none of that stuff is sort of like happening. So one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to sort of think about how nature is used as a device in these texts to, um, to sort of neutralize or even um, kind of, you know, transcend this Western notion. Um, all of these Western notions about Black women as you know, um, um, as these kind of vilified figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this this is so you know, and this is why it's kind of the opening chapter. It's like you belong here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. this is what both of these texts, I think, sort of say, is that you know, uh, Black women belong. Here on this planet, so, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so that this is that's a big part of what's kind of happening there. I also think, you know, the other kind of um, critical orientation I have here, you know, comes from Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, so there so this ter- so I introduced this term in in the book. It's not my term; it's a term from the monk Thich Nhat Hanh, interbeing. But, you know, I'm sort of putting that in the context of this kind of this Black Studies project in order to sort of find a word, find a concept that explains the way in which these texts um, write against Western notions about Black women. And instead suggest a, a, a situation of interbeing that is represented by Black women's engagement with nature and mm-hmm. and the function of that interbeing is really to mediate against the harmful effects of of white supremacy.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's such an ama- it's a amazing chapter and uh it's one of those chapters I thought I think if if people get eyes on that chapter the book in general but on that chapter there are so many further projects on both those texts. Um, because you unlock, I think all of those dimensions, starting with, as you said, just the, we belong in nature, right? That's that itself is, is, is something both those texts do. And I I hadn't really framed them in that way until I read the, you know, what you, what you had to, how you reckoned with the two and the way it's set, obviously in the, the context of, of the entire book, um, and I want to ask you then. I mean, I'm interested also how that segues into sort of thinking about broader questions of eco-criticism, environmental studies, and so forth. But before I ask you about that, I actually want to go back to, you know, um, you mentioned in talking about your theoretical orientation that Afro pessimism in, in 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 its you know contemporary iteration is a major part of your your own orientation uh, in the project and in the concluding chapter. You know, I I like that you put it in in its starkest terms, which is it's about the end of the world. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, that Afro-pessimism and the questions that it raises is an is an apocalyptic project. Um, and my own a lot of my own interests, especially in, in mid-century Caribbean theory, is about this persistence of this notion of apocalypse in in work and Fanon's work. And so it's really interesting to see you in this the context of this book come come to that question of the end of the world. And I, you know, for me, and maybe I've missed uh, other trends in scholarship, but I hadn't seen notions of plant life and nature be put into relation to these Afro-pessimist questions. And again, it's like, you know, I was like, this is really an important intersection. And so I wanted to, in some ways, I mean, people should go read the book, but to ask you to walk through that, you know, it's an, I wasn't quite sure how to put it, right? I didn't want to call it your critique of Afro-pessimism, but, uh, but it's really incisive kind of engagement that I think changes for me as a reader of Afro-pessimism and as a reader of this book really changed so much of the way I even think of the stakes of Afro-pessimism and how to begin a conversation with it because it's about ontology obviously yeah. so often related to sort of libidinal forms of you know desire and and language and 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 political economy but the way you bring that outside that to say if it's about ontology ontology is also about nature it's about plant life it's about our embodied presence in the world so you know what how you know what what are you doing in that chapter? You know, and, and what do you, what do you want your response or responsive relationship to Afro pessimism? Where do you want it to lead us?
1: Well, you know, I, I know a lot of folks uh, don't like Afro pessimism because they feel that it ignores or excludes all of these like sort of liberatory sites in, in black history, black culture, black studies. And, and my, my, sense is not that Afro-pessimism is saying there is no Black life, there is no Black joy, there there aren't these, you know, sort of affectively, quote unquote, positive things. My sense is that Afro-pessimism is a critique of Western society. And this is one of the ways in which my Black studies approach intersects with anarcho-primitivism or uh, anarchy, Black anarchy, you know, a la the formations in like Marquis Bay's work. Um, my view is that you know it, it, sort of extending some of what Calvin Warren is talking about in his work um in ontological terror is that you know apocalypse means the end of anti blackness apocalypse okay. also means um will probably also mean the end of environmental degradation because. In the absence of uh, ginormous governments um, that that oversee and incentivize uh, corporate power, um, you know, I mean, this just everybody's going to have to keep their um, their iPhone for the next 20 years. I don't know. Like, you know, it's just it's everything is going, you know, all material relations would shift in an apocalyptic kind of scenario. And that's and, you know, and this is kind of what James C. Scott is saying in um, um, in his work is that the fall of society, you know, apocalypse, you know, what we call apocalypse um, actually, you know, is not only sort of predictable, but also might be better, uh, might allow Mm -hmm. for, you know, the undercommons to actually no longer be under. Um, and so a big part of what I'm, I'm sort of the way I deploy Afro-pessimism and the way I understand Afro-pessimism is that it's really not a critique of blackness. It's not a comment on blackness. It's a comment on uh, white supremacist discourses about Blackness. It's a comment on Western society. It's not really a comment on the Black undercommons or on Black life itself. This is how I read um, Afro-Pessimism. And so for me, embracing the Afro-Pessimist framework is necessary as a way to begin to disidentify from these systemic structures, which you know, can never actually not be anti-Black. So, I mean, if you just look at the whole, if you just read all, you know, if you look at Ta-Nehisi Coates, like, you know, in Between the World and Me, when he's talking about the police and he's saying, you know, it's not really that, like, when the police kill a Black person, they're somehow in violation of the logics of American society. Actually, they are fulfilling the logic of American society, right? When we, so when we're looking at, at formations like that, what, what, I mean, what's happened is we have a kind of history of thinking that we can kind of address the symptom and that the symptom is the disease, you know? Um, and what Afro-pessimism says is, you know, as Warren says, black lives can't matter in this cu- cultural formation. It's not really like we can sort of go in and lift up the hood and tinker with a few things in western society and suddenly it'll become some egalitarian structure. Actually anti-blackness is the logic which makes it go. So as long as we kind of maintain this society, we will have these same effects, right? And that's and that's, you know, and and to me Afro pessimism is also an attempt to address the fatigue. I mean, we've also seen we've all seen like on social media, you know, a a picture of someone at a protest holding a sign that says, I can't believe I still have to protest this shit. Right. And Mm -hmm. so to me, Afro pessimism answers that question of why we're still protesting, even though every argument has been made, every assumption about, you know, and I'm only talking specifically about blackness. There, there are implications for this for other oppressed groups as well, but every argument, you know, every everything has been already been, you know, proven to be sort of untrue. And by that, I mean, you know, during slavery times, um, The assumption was the assumption on the part of the of of white culture was, you know, African slash black people are not Christians and they they can't learn how to read and write. Therefore, we're entitled to enslave them. Let's just put aside how 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 messed up that logic is uh, Mm -hmm. in from any perspective. But of course, black people convert to Christianity, black people write books, black people become literate. And then and then the argument has to shift. It has to shift again. It has to shift to other kinds of things. And so this is the game, this is a sort of historical game we've been playing for hundreds of years where it's sort of, uh, you know, this, this benchmark of what gets to make you count as a human moves over here or moves over there. Black mm-hmm. people jump over that you know, far above and beyond. And yet then the benchmark just moves again at a certain point. We have to say to ourselves, maybe the game here, actually, maybe those benchmarks are actually artificial and arbitrary at that. Maybe actually the benchmark is just a distraction for, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is kind of what Toni Morrison said, right. Where she said, trying to prove, You know, to white people that black people aren't this or aren't that, or that black people can do this and can do that, is is a distraction. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's a distraction from the fact that the way this system is made and the way it operates, with no intention of 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 actually being anything different, and really can't be anything different, is upon anti-blackness. So what Afro-Pessimism does for me is it allows me to disinvest in these structures to, you know, to the extent that I don't believe that there's, you know, someone who can become president that's going to liberate Black people. Mm -hmm. That isn't to say I don't believe in harm mitigation when it comes to elections and things of that sort. But Mm -hmm. no one being president is going to, you know, unturn the wheel of what America is. The only way we can really do that is to radically undo and deconstruct this system. And that to me seems to be what Afro pessimism is about. Um, And so that's kind of how I'm using it in the book and in the plant life chapter, you know, the, the, I, I I take this position that I have that I'm reading from the Afro pessimist framework and using Calvin Warren's notions about the metaphysical human and the ways in which Western ontology can never is incapable of ever um you know operating as a category that also means black people um I then suggest that the whole ontological framework of metaphysical humanism you know following warren should be should be undone should be discarded, and that there are some other ontological frameworks uh, which you know, have been articulated, like by mm-hmm. Suzanne Césaire, who articulates this ontology of plant life, and then I'm looking at it in the in the work of Butler and in the Girl with All the Gifts, the the film version of of uh, Carrie's novel, The Girl with All the Gifts, mm-hmm. um, in order to sort of say what might it mean to to base our ontological projections. On the natural world, as opposed (laughs) to defining and, you know, and then this sort of comes full circle to back to the introduction, instead of sort of defining our ontology as the opposite of nature, which is what comes out of Francis Bacon and Enlightenment humanism in Europe.
0: Yeah, no. That, I'm glad I asked this question. That was its own chapter. I love that. <laughs> that that was fantastic. And I, it's it just also I have to say, I just appreciate like a like a serious engagement with Afro pessimism. I really worry about, you know, trends as you say of like, well, what about this? What about that? As if Afro pessimism wasn't about the structure of our being, right? As a as an interracial space um and instead about affects or feelings or, or relationships you know certain kinds of relationships being you know one-dimensional and so but also i like that it was it you know that the chapter and really the book as a whole you know that's why i was looking for a word it's not really a critique it's it's an engagement but it's also a part of the horizon of apro-pessimism. and i do. I do think if this is going to be, if if Black to Nature is going to be a book that people start reading alongside all these other Afro-pessimist texts, it just, you open up, as you just said, right? Just even that last, you know, however many minutes of, of talking, you just open up so many other dimensions of being that the abstract question of being, as you say, I mean, this is just enlightenment reason. Yeah. Uh, this is the, the the Galilean turn to mathematize nature, so that we aren't thinking about it as enveloping, and instead are thinking about it as 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 an instrument to, or thinking of it as the object of our instruments. Mm-hmm. Right, and thinking about ontology as at that level of instruments limits both our ideas of of liberation possibility, as you've spoken to, and also our understanding of you know what. Afro-pessimism as a disposition and theoretical orientation could mean. So I, I, I think that part of the book, if I could get it on the, you know, if people want to talk about Afro-pessimism, also read Black to Nature. It's not just, you know, you don't just have to know Lacan and Heidegger. It's also going to embed you in these other kinds of, of, of sites. But the sites you embed in terms of, of nature, in terms of plant life, just open up different possibilities for thinking apocalyptically. Right. That it doesn't become a kind of mystical illusion that M.A. Césaire maybe had or France Fanon sort of had as a political explosive moment, but instead about about something in some ways, both more explosive, but also more intimate.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: So picking up on that, that nature, you know, questions of of nature and plant life, you know, as you noted at the very beginning, narrating into the project, You know, when you started thinking about this project, sort of environmental studies, eco-criticism, these sorts of approaches were, you know, limited, right? I mean, there just wasn't that much, you know, on that, uh, and it's certainly not in black studies or study of African-American literature and culture. And it's increasingly, at least rhetorically, something people turn to, whether or not people do sustained analysis, I think is another question. But I'm wondering if just thinking about this emerging field of sort of thinking literature and, 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 uh, and environmental studies together or cultural studies and ecology together, all those cognates. You know, what do you think your book does that is, is a sort of shift or addition or part of the accumulation of insights for this field, yeah. this sort of emerging subfield and disposition?
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think what the book does is a couple of, you know, that's a little bit different. It's a couple of things. Um, I mean, I think stylistically it's really different just especially in terms of the ways in which I kind of weave in personal narrative, but that's always been my preferred style. Even if I, even if I haven't always been able to actually do it, you know, because of, 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 you know, uh, Pressures, you know, in the field kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and so, so I do think that you know, I'm I'm really interested in, and and one of the sort of theoretical reasons for that is not just because I'm, you know, I like talking about myself. It's not, it's not, this is not like because of narcissism. Um, it's because I'm really invested in people, kind of knowing, and and, and this is this is you know something that I think the book contributes. So I don't want to say I'm the only person who has, who says this, Um, I'm certainly not. Um, But I really want us to sort of think about and reorient our our notions about nature as talking about ourselves, Mm -hmm. because we are nature too. (laughs) So, um, Mm -hmm. so it's like uh, when, so, but, but we have this way, right? Like there's this sort of dialectical tension that, that, you know, English romance languages introduce into all of this sort of thinking where it's like, so we have this way when we're talking about nature or we talk about anything, we all, whenever we, we begin to talk about it, we're instantly sort of objectifying it as something Mm -hmm. out there that I am thinking about. And so a big part of what I what I wanted to do was to collapse that gap as much as I possibly could mm-hmm. um, in the book. Um, the other thing I think that my book does that might be particularly unique is its sort of spiritual implications of the work that I'm doing. The ways in which I draw upon um, Buddhist thinkers from Thich Nhat Hanh to Alan Watts um, in order to... Um, sort of deepen and also kind of collapse that false binary between Mm -hmm. uh, metaphysical humanism as, you know, i.e. people and, you know, nature as this sort of green elsewhere. So, Uh so I think that, that my work is unique in this in sort of bringing together some fields and some disciplines and some ideas, which we normally don't find together, but by sort of mixing them together, you get, you know, you get a, a um, it undermines that this, these enlightenment notions about um, the separation between humans and nature.
0: I have to say, you know, for what it's worth this, after reading this book and thinking about it, um, it's, it has me revisiting Leopold Senghor's uh, critical work mm-hmm. and uh, sort of, I mean, he's a very particular uh, version of negritude, which is a, d- a diverse field of you know from the mid-century. But I think when you're talking about that, those collapses of binaries, it's interesting for me to revisit. And this is just my own, you know, intellectual interests of, of in francophone studies. But so much of that um, period where Senghor was arguing for this collapse of the binary and you know, people sort of, uh, you know, what the Western humanist ideal of, of separation from nature and then reintegration with nature through acts of will and knowledge, and this collapse in this idea of, you know, harmony, or, you know, whatever, you know, these are a whole host of critical terms. So much of that, I think, has been written off by scholars, because um, there are very few defenders of that in Senghor, as a sort of, you know, caricature or sort of hyperbole about, quote, the African subject. But it really, your book really made me rethink about sort of Senghor after Afro-pessimism. Right. In terms Mm -hmm. of like, you know, what would it mean to reread him in terms of the kind of Afro pessimism that you're engaging with in this book? And so when I say, like, I think you open up a whole set of projects, not obviously for yourself, but for all of us as readers, I think there are all these mid century resistance to to European humanism that kind of got lost and now Mm -hmm. get reframed in the way, you know, I think eco criticism helps get us there. But it's that apocalyptic moment of colonialism and anti-colonial struggle, right? That feeling like the whole world might explode. Yeah. Also had this relationship to nature in in Senghor in particular, but in a lot of Francophone African thinkers. So, sorry, I'm just having a little excursus here (laughs) hearing you talk about that. But, you know, for me, it like reopens ways of reading the tradition where it's not, it's no longer the binary of Europe-Africa. It is the binary of european humanism and and the persistence of nature something yeah. after the 3 years of this fucking pandemic i mean can't we understand that we are a part of nature right. too right haven't we noticed that
1: and that you know all of these notions we have about separation are false right like so this idea that i mean if anything should sort of be able to show us that we are deeply Sort of interconnected and not separate. It's COVID because once it sort of emerged in the world, it it became a global. It became a global thing because we breathe mm-hmm. one air.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: the air I'm breathing right now has passed through the lungs of countless people who aren't present here. But there, the you know, the air that we breathe. We have this notion that because we can't see it, it's not there but but i actually really kind of perceive us all as one body connected by air it's just mm-hmm. really differences in sort of viscosity um it's not really a kind of separation and so um so this is you know these are the these are some of my sort of stakes in the work uh that i do
0: so you probably have uh, even just in that uh started to answer this is last couple of questions I have, which is, you know, when we write books, um, we write them for ourselves and cause we have something to say, but also so that people read them that can be fraught with anxiety and anticipation and all, everything in between. Um, but you know, I think probably, you know, very few of us think we can control readers. That seems like a terrible authoritarian impulse, but we do want people to, have their sensibilities changed? I always make a distinction between uh, a takeaway and a walkaway. I don't like takeaway. A book shouldn't be this sort of object that you just come and you know pick and choose, like you're at the the supermarket. I like the idea that books make us walk different, that that we move differently in the world because our sensibilities, big or small have been shifted in some way when we read a book. And so uh, writing, I often think like, how do I want people to walk a little bit differently? Um, Your book has, as you, as you've said many times or articulated many times, extremely high stakes. And so I was wondering how, you know, maybe as a way of, 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 of concluding our conversation, how would you put it? How do you want people to walk differently after this book? Have their sensibilities changed? Well,
1: um, so, you know, as a kind of like, uh, you know, as as I kind of started by talking about how the book, how I came to the book because of, you know, upheaval, you know, in my in my own life. And, you know, I think trauma is kind of the understory of this of this work. Um, and, you know, so you know i'm particularly sensitive like as a teacher to the stress for example that students feel um and also you know because so many things are going on in their lives and mm-hmm. you know i've sometimes you know done a thing when the weather is good where i tell students okay i want you to go outside and just find a place that feels good to you and sit there and just and just do a free write mhm Um, often students will come in more stressed than when they left because, um, they're afraid of bugs. There were bees or, you know, some, some, you know, they got a little wet when they sat on the Mm -hmm. grass or, you know, just something right like that. And I always find that to be really like (laughs) sad, you know, I find that to be, I find that to be a kind of a sad, uh, reflection of the deep, deep level of anxiety and stress that they must be kind of feeling all the time. And so part of what I want people to feel when they're done reading the book is I want them to feel hope. And I want them, you know, hope that like all of this kind of um, um, the shackles of the way this, this society kind of works, which become more and more evident, you know, the older you get. Right. I mean, um in college is sort of the place where um young people are starting to sort of see like oh my goodness like um like like this capitalist logic is actually really akin to slavery and things like that mm-hmm. and so it's when they begin to start to think like oh maybe it won't be so easy for me to do the things i thought i was going to do or maybe i'll even be prohibited from doing them because of these systemic structures and what i want to suggest what i want people to sort of like feel is like yeah all this stuff is there and it's happening like it is it's true and it is like and you can't self-care your way out of police brutality out of transphobia out Mm of um you know um um homophobia and racism and all of those all of these structures which make you know sort of thriving difficult so you can't self-care your way out of that stuff but the the world in which we live the world that produced us is actually the answer to this structure that's been created that can be uncreated and Mm -hmm. so and so that's kind of you know that's sort of the you know that's kind of the implication i think and so I would want people to walk away from the book and sort of say, oh, okay, so I've been feeling this way and that way, like I don't belong and like I shouldn't be here. And like, you know, I can never be happy. I can never relax. I'm always in danger. But I could actually kind of step away from all of that ideologically and, you know, in some cases, even physically and be in another kind of space where I actually get to just be. The living creature that I am. <laughs> I would say human being because human being is overdetermined, as we know. <laughs> but, you know, where I can actually just be like, I could actually just be here unstressed, exactly the way I am, without constantly feeling that there's something working upon me. And what would it look like to build a world around that, as opposed to building a world around all these notions of separation? So
0: I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how about you? How do you walk away from this book? I mean, we, you know, we read when we read books, we have our uh, we walk differently. Our sensibilities are changed. But as authors were changed from the moment we type that first word to the end. So yeah. how do you walk away from this book? It is an invitation if you want to talk about sort of future interests and projects, but I also hate that because I'm like, it's, we all have a right to just be really happy about our books. So I don't mean it like, you know, what's next, but like, how do you walk away differently from this book?
1: Well, um, you know, I mean, I have a very, um, off and on an ambivalent relationship to, um, you know, further work. Um, Although I I have a lot of ideas, um, and I I never really stop thinking, and um, so writing the book um, kind of like you know was another sort of like major transition or rebirth for me in the sense that it it taught me how to um, how to focus so exclusively on what I care about and then bring that into the world. Like, so, um, so, so writing it taught me a lot about my Mm -hmm. own mind and, um, and you know, what I, you know, the kinds of things I want to say, it emboldened me and made me stronger, like as a thinker and as a writer. Um, and so, um, so I'm really grateful, you know, for the process of, of doing it because, you know, like, um, it, it just, it, like, I love the book. I like, I love the book, you know, the same way. I don't know, like I would, I love a beautiful dish that I made or something. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, um, and so it has, it has given me a just a good feeling that I've said something in the world that was worth saying and that, and that might be useful to some people. And that also might articulate something people are feeling because in all of the talks I've done and, and book, events I've done since it came out, I've had so many people come up to me and say, this is exactly how I feel. Like, this is exactly what I've been thinking about. And so, um, so that's been really, you know, super awesome. Um, And so now, I I mean, you know, I'm working on a, on a project that is, you know, in my mind, it has a lot of critical overlap with black to nature, but it's about outer space. And so people may feel like, that's not about nature, but part of what I'm showing is that that's another kind of herniation in our thinking that's false. And in Mm -hmm. fact, outer space is nature too. Um, and that there are certain kinds of ways in which, um, like in the continuing sort of deconstruction of, um, you know, ourselves from the quote unquote outside world, um, that there's a way that we think about. So it's just actually broadening the, the sphere of this, this sort of analytical mode and it, Mm -hmm. and it produces some really interesting, you know, textual outcomes and it's in the tradition. (laughs) It's already in the, you know, like just like black to nature, it's already in the, in the, in the tradition. Um, It's already there, right. This way that, um, You know, the the way that we think about outer space is that we're here and it's there. But actually, you know, what I'm showing in this work is that that also is not true. That's not even true on a quantum level. It's just not true at all. And what does it mean to really know and embrace the fact that that's not true? So...
0: I can't wait to see where that project goes from from black to nature to black to outer space or however this gets phrased. I love that project uh, and I, uh, it's called it's know, called I,
1: uh, it's called otherworldly a black ecology of outer space. So that's the that's oh. what I'm working on now
0: fantastic i i love starting with titles myself as a writer so so i'm glad i'm not the only one who's like i came up with a great title now i can write this book but um thank you so much for making this time this is really fantastic conversation Uh, i loved your book and and it's been um, you know like a real gift to be able to hear you talk about it and its implications origins and some of the deep stakes that you know you articulate really well in the book and it's just really uh, i loved hearing them out loud again so thank you so much for that
1: thank you thank you for having me i really enjoyed talking about the book and all this stuff and meeting you
0: yes and me too absolutely well take care you too all right bye-bye. bye
1: bye bye